Production funding for Ruckus has been provided by gifts from Dave and Jamie Cummings, the Fred and Lou Hartwig family, Peter and Barbara Gattermeyer, the Courtney S. Turner Charitable Trust, John H. Mize, and Bank of America N.A. co-trustees. And by viewers like you. Thank you. Welcome to Ruckus, our weekly food for thought fight over the news of the day and the trends of the times. I'm Mike Shannon. The Ruckettes join me shortly in our topics this week. Congressman Cleaver decides to go with Joe. County Executive White says the combat audit is a no-go and pollsters audit themselves, plus roast and toast. But we're going to start with our newsmaker segment and welcome the Attorney General of Kansas, Derek Schmidt, now in his third term. Before becoming Attorney General, Schmidt was elected to the state Senate in 2000, ultimately serving as Majority Leader. We'll talk today about criminal justice reform and some other items as well. General Schmidt, welcome to Ruckus. Thank you very much for coming in, sir. Thanks for the invitation, Mike. I'm sure everybody knows we have an attorney general in Kansas. I'm not sure everyone understands what the responsibilities and roles are. Can you give us a quick overview? Well, we usually say that's a good thing around the office if people aren't waking up first thing in the morning wondering about their attorney general. We're the state's lawyer, but that means a lot of different things. Uh, sometimes we're the state's defense counsel when the state, or ultimately the taxpayers, because they have the money, uh, get sued. Sometimes we're criminal prosecutors. Sometimes we're investigators of Medicaid fraud. Sometimes we're running crime victim support programs. Sometimes we're providing counsel and uh, uh, services to state agencies. So it really varies. Uh, the legislature has given us a lot of duties over the years. Unlike the federal government where a president appoints an attorney general uh, who is ultimately confirmed by the Senate, state attorneys general, or at least in Kansas, are elected that means you had to run as a partisan politician. You're a Republican. Would you say you're a basic conservative Republican? Yeah, that's how I've always thought of myself. More liked by the NRA than the ACLU? <laughs> Most days, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask you about a, a law that I know was passed in Kansas requiring someone registering to vote to provide proof of citizenship. Mm -hmm. And that law was overturned by a federal district court it was Chris Kobach's law when he was Secretary of State. He appealed the decision. It went to an appellate court. Kobach left office. That's now under your jurisdiction? Right. We inherited those appellate right. cases when Secretary Kobach left office. And, uh, you know, we've continued to defend the statute. I think that's the right thing to do. Uh, the legislature enacted the law, notwithstanding the fact that uh, it's been really associated with the former Secretary of State. It was passed by overwhelming bipartisan majorities in the Kansas legislature, and I think it deserves a vigorous defense. So we're giving it that. You, we've, uh, we've argued the case at the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, and we're awaiting the court's decision. Have any idea when that decision might be no, handed down? No, we check every day to see if that's the day, but it hasn't been yet. I want to talk to you, and I know this is a major interest of yours, criminal justice reform. Uh, what is the Criminal Justice Reform Commission? You know, the legislature decided this year that there ought to be a, a, a robust, comprehensive uh, review of the state's criminal justice uh, system with an eye toward reforming it. It's not the first time the legislature has done that. They did it in 2004, set up by statute a commission with a similar mandate, and they've done it again now. And so because of that, uh, we're taking a look. I participate as a member of the commission by law. And uh, from my vantage point, uh, what I've really tried to do, because it's such an enormous topic, uh, we know from the 04 experience, if you bite off too much, maybe not very much gets done. So I've really tried to focus our discussions as much as I can uh, in areas I think there's some, some really uh, sort of 
opportunity well, for agreement. You're very concerned about people who are incarcerated because of mental health right. and drug usage and, and other addiction problems. In my mind, the question uh, that, that's fruitful is how can we actually make a difference, have a, have a fighting chance of making a difference in changing offender behavior so that they don't reoffend and therefore our communities are safer down the road. That's good for everybody, from the offender to the community to crime victims. And that really requires, in my view at least, a focus on mental health interventions for folks who, whose misbehavior is motivated by some form of mental illness, uh, and substance abuse intervention for the large majority of people in our prisons whose uh, misconduct is motivated, at least in part, by their addictions. How costly do you think these reforms you're talking about would cost? How Potentially very. Uh, I've really tried to ring the alarm bell going in because I don't want anyone to have what I believe to be the false notion that you can do criminal justice reform on the cheap. I mean, you can make changes on the cheap, but you can't fix the system on the cheap. To fix the system, you have to do the types of things that have a chance of change in behavior. And that means more drug treatment, which is costly, more mental health treatment, which is costly. While I was reading some background material about your career, I came across an item that said you might be interested in running for the U.S. Senate in 2020 to uh, succeed Pat Roberts. Are you interested? Well, of course I'm interested. Uh, uh, many of us in public office are. I've said that I'll make a final decision on that sometime after we get done with a series of, of high-level appellate arguments that are scheduled for this fall and before the state Republican convention next spring. Are you waiting for Mike Pompeo to either say he's in or he's not in? He, he seems to say he wants to stay in the job he has now as Secretary of State. Well, I, I like and respect Mike, but I'm more waiting on my wife. <laughs> and what is her view? Uh, she'll let me know sometime later this fall. I think. Well, you'll let us know when you decide, I trust. I will, absolutely. All right, sir. Thank you very much for coming in. Appreciate your time. It's great to meet you. Come back and see us again. Thank you, Mike. Enjoy it. That is the Kansas Attorney General Derek Schmidt. Now let's meet the panel and start a ruckus. Michelle Watley is the founder of the Grio Group, a consulting firm. Annie Presley is a writer, publisher, and GOP fundraiser. Lisa Johnston is a columnist and consultant. And Dave Troppert is the president of the Kansas Policy Institute. Welcome to all of you. Good to have you with us. A uh, lot to talk Mike. about. Glad to have you on board. Jackson County Executive Frank White says the audit of the combat program, a tax-funded anti-drug, anti-crime effort, is inaccurate, filled with misinformation. Prosecuting attorney Jean Peters Baker, who voters put in charge of the program last year, says the only misinformation in the audit she ordered came from White and his staff. The combat audit says billions of dollars have been misspent by White's administration and the administration of his predecessor, predecessor Mike Sanders, who's now in prison for a crime not related to combat. There is a lot of pressure on White because of this issue and several others including, but not limited to, the property tax controversy, the jail, and his personal finances. Some call for his resignation. Do you think that's likely, Michelle? Uh, not from what I can tell. Um, his uh, essentially uh, denial or essentially uh, backlash of uh, what the reports found and what the audit found, I mean, it's just telling that he doesn't, if he doesn't believe that the report is accurate, I don't see where he then feels the need to resign, even with all of the pressure uh, that he's facing. Yeah, he, he says the audit is not correct, but the auditors have issued a report saying 
that they've rechecked it, and it is essentially correct. But let me ask that same question to you, Annie. Do you think uh, there's any likelihood that uh, Frank White's going to resign? Well, I don't know that he'll resign. There's probably more and more pressure on him to do so because there are other topics that are kind of piling up behind him, and this one's just been recently added. But, but about combat in particular, previous administrations have used combat funds sort of to pay other bills, which is what this BKD audit revealed. So I mean, it's probably not smart business, and it's probably an opportunity to clean up this budgeting process. But it's not something independently that he's done sort of out of the blue. It's been done before. Well, but that's the problem. The, the money is to fight crime and fight drugs, not to pay people to travel or to right. use he, as salaries for other jobs. Exactly. And that's what's been going on. And it, it was clear it was in the Sanders administration as well. So he's... A, and he's, maybe be, before that as well Perhaps before also. that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Lisa, do you have confidence now that with Gene Peters Baker in charge, the program will be run correctly? Well, hopefully there will be improvements. Certainly it's good that there's an audit going on. And it's very, very frustrating because it's exactly this kind of activity that undermines the people's confidence in their elected leaders. You know, there was a lot of discussion about, well, this doesn't rise to the bar of being illegal. Yes, but it's still unethical, improper, and lacks integrity. And we need to expect more of our elected officials than what we're seeing with what's going on here. Dave, you think there's been any evidence that this uh, combat tax has done any good in reducing crime and drug use in Jackson County? No, but that's, that's not surprising. Government's typical reaction is to throw someone else's money at a problem without, instead of looking at what are the underlying causes and trying to do something about that with existing resources, government at all levels, city, county, state, federal, uh, thinks that if you just throw someone else's money at it, then, then they're, they, it looks like they're doing something, but really not. Probably the bigger issue is this question about the property tax and mm. the dramatic increase. Mm -hmm. And uh, Frank White came out with an idea, Michelle, to cut the county's level by $3 million and the legislators have refused to do that, and others have said, well, that would make hardly any difference at all. So I don't know what they're going to do, Annie. Uh, who knows what they're going to do? They have so many issues now that need to be addressed. But the property tax one is actually quite interesting because only certain households were affected. And they need to go back probably and take a look at that because it was fairly dramatic. Some got as much as a 25% increase on in their property yeah, taxes. The property tax is based on several organizations like city and mm -hmm. the school, school district, district, library, mm -hmm. yeah. et cetera. Mm -hmm. and, and I believe there's now a report that the school district is not going to uh, cut the level of taxation. No, the school district uh, now says they're, they're going to happily accept their 23% tax increase mm. and, and almost making it sound like they're entitled to it. Uh, it, it's, it. It's craziness what's happening to property taxes. And it's, it's gotten a lot of headlines in Missouri, certainly, but property taxes are a big issue in Kansas as well. There's never been much taxation for the school district in Kansas City, Missouri. <laughs> no, no, and that's a great example of if you know if you throw money at it, it'll fix it. Uh, Lisa, uh, at City Hall, Troy Schulte, the city manager who's been there about a decade, mm -hmm. has announced that uh, he's going to retire at the first of the year, no doubt with a very good pension because he was at the city longer than the ten years he served as city manager. Is this going to be a big deal uh, finding a new city manager? 
Well, that's a very important position, and so it is a big deal in the sense that you want to find someone who's very competent and trustworthy, who can work uh, well and manage uh, things. And so, yeah, it's extremely important that they get someone excellent for that role. I, I don't think most people in Kansas City, Missouri, or anywhere else for that matter, really understand how significant a city manager is in a city manager form of government. I mean, this is the guy or woman who makes some of the key distinctions and decisions, not the mayor and not always the city council. Budget. It's all about the budget. This job is a very, very strong job. And what I love particularly about Tori Schulte is that he kept a very low profile and he was very capable of managing conversations around the budget and different topics and was just really clear about moving forward in a quiet way. You Not think? only the budget, but you all, they also, the city manager also oversees the different departments that run mm -hmm. the city, so I mean it is a very strong um, position for uh, someone to have in Kansas City government, so it's going to be telling to see how and who is uh, set up to replace uh, uh, He may have had a sense that with a new mayor and six new members on the city council it was probably a good time to think about retirement and moving on. We will move on. Some Democrats have their doubts about Joe Biden becoming the party's nominee for president. He's too old, too out of touch, too gaff prone. Now others don't see that. They see a longtime public official who gave up a key Senate seat to serve as Barack Obama's loyal vice president. They see a popular figure who many believe can easily defeat President Trump in next year's race. Now Kansas City Congressman Emanuel Cleaver has weighed in, endorsing Biden for the nomination, calling him a leader who has never been afraid to speak out for what he believes is right. Cleaver, who was Kansas City's first African-American mayor, says he struggled over the Biden endorsement because two African-Americans, Senators Booker and Harris, are also running. Now that we know who Congressman Cleaver endorses, the question becomes, how valuable is this endorsement, Lisa? Well, I think it was helpful in the shadow of the last debate when Joe Biden gave a clumsy, semi-incoherent response to a question about <laughs> racial inequality and reparations, ending with him talking about playing record players in African-American homes. And then woke liberals, uh, there was an outcry with them saying that he, this is disqualifying, he should not be the nominee and so forth. And so I think that the congressman was coming forward to indicate that, you know, despite the inelegance of the debate response, that he still sees all the good that Joe Biden has done, and he wanted to give a stiff arm to the woke liberal outrage. And you can kind of see that in some of his commentary, where he notes that millennials don't understand the history of everything that had been done. So they I don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, news to you, right? But yeah, he was making that point, and so I, I think that he he wanted to express the fact that he really believes that Joe Biden at this time is the best person to be the nominee for the party. You, you I think, sent out a news release about uh, Biden's endorsement, so uh, about did. the endorsement of Biden by Cleaver. You must know a lot about it. What motivated the mayor, former um, mayor? 
I think a number of actors that Lisa just mentioned probably did. His history with Biden, the time that they've probably spent in Congress working together, um, I imagine a lot of that played into it. And of course, he had to mention that it was a, a tough decision because with two African-American candidates in the race, there was probably an assumption that he would support either one of those candidates. But Congressman Cleaver, uh, initially, when President Obama, former President Obama and, and Clinton ran against each other, he was a staunch Clinton supporter and had been for both, you know, for the entirety of the term. So um, I think it's an important endorsement, especially as candidates begin to vie and jockey for other uh, members of the Congressional Black Caucus to show their support because it becomes important when you look at uh, the timeline trajectory of the of the uh, elections, essentially. What happens in South Carolina, you know, is yeah. uh, dependent upon. Is Cleaver influential in the Congress? He used to serve as head of the Congressional Black Caucus. I think he's influential, but I think that his influence here uh, stems from his work with the Congressional Black Caucus, having been a former executive director of the Black Caucus, um, the fact that he's in Missouri, and again, when we look at the timeline, uh, being able to shore up as many Congressional Black Caucus members before South Carolina becomes important, something that, for instance, Cory Booker has been able to accomplish. South I think Carolina has a huge African-American yes, population. population. Uh, so, Annie, uh, Emmanuel Cleaver, I'm sure you know him well from his many years as mayor and on the city council and in Congress. Uh, he's now endorsed the impeachment of President Trump. Did that surprise you at all? No. This is generally a party line effort, and so that's not a surprise at all. I think Emmanuel is um, a really great guy, and I think he's pretty well in tune with his district. And I think he believes that if they get the right presidential candidate and he's chosen Biden, that that Missouri can go Democrat in in the uh, campaign this this round. So he's being strategic in the decisions that he's making and appropriate to his party. David, it seems like the perpetual impeachment activity uh, continues, as you would expect something that is perpetual to do. Uh, perpetual to do. Uh, is this going to be successful? Are we going to see an impeachment? I don't think so. I, I don't think that um, it'll be successful, it, even if it gets out of the House. I don't think the Senate uh, would vote to impeach. Now, why do it then? Uh, it's political theater. I mean, it's been, it's been this way since the day after the 2016 election. Uh, one party lost, one party won, and the party that lost can't get over it still. Um, and, and so it's been, the, the, uh, the goalpost has moved as to what would be the impeachable offense, but it's, it's almost like we're going to impeach and then we're going to go find something to impeach him about. And, and I'm not making excuses for Trump. He needs to stop giving the, his opponents a club to hit him over the head with. <laughs> but, but this isn't, I don't think this Got to move on. Almost every poll shows almost every Democrat running for president well ahead of the incumbent in a head-to-head -head contest. Now, does that mean Donald J. Trump has no chance of serving a second term? If you believe professional pollsters, the answer is no. A recent Kansas City Star headline put it like this. Pollsters say Trump closer to Dems than current polls on race suggest. Now, some pollsters quoted in the story still believe that 2020 could be a blue wave election, giving Democrats control of the White House and the Congress. But others say the election is still winnable for Trump, who is good at sharpening the negatives of his opponents. Lion Ted, Little Marco, Crooked Hillary, Sleepy Joe, Pocahontas, <laughs> etc. 
So, how should we react to polls? Trust them, ignore them, or do something else, Dave? Uh, it, it's a case-by-case -case situation, Mike. I mean, uh, polls can be very valuable, but really every poll depends upon how well-informed the participants are. So if you ask someone today, for example, who would you vote for for president, the answers you get depend upon how well-informed those participants are of all the candidates. And most of them, we know, uh, really aren't that well-informed. So it's, it, you know, it, it's, it's really early. Polls can shift. So something on these kind of beauty pageant polls, the results can shift dramatically over time. And not only that, but the quality of the polls themselves varies widely from pollster to pollster. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give two quick examples. From this past week, there was a Fox poll that showed Biden up 14 over Trump and an Emerson poll that showed him up one. And the samples were completely different. The Fox poll was 49% Democrat, 39% Republican, 12% Independent, and the Emerson poll had a better sample that was more representative, 38% Democrat, 34 Republican, 28 Independent. So some of these polls are garbage in, garbage out. If the sample doesn't represent the electorate, you can't put too much weight on the poll itself. And there was a Fox poll I saw that, that had virtually every Democrat beating Trump. And then there was a question, who do you think will be elected president next year? And the answer was <laughs> Donald Trump by a plurality. Right. So how well, is that a how does that happen? result? Yes, exactly. Yeah. You ever been polled, Annie? Oh, yes. And I've been a part of a big team who did a lot that did a lot of polling and ser several different campaigns. There, there are two very valuable indicators in polling. One is your political party mm -hmm. and the other is fundraising. So even when a person decides to run for president, they have to go around and do an exercise called shopping and you go to different markets and you just see who's going to write a check. And that's how you decide whether or not you have any viability to run for president. It's still a very, very effective way to figure that out. And it is considered a polling technique. So there are very specific techniques that are indicative in, I would say, the bloodbath of what, what, what's going to happen in the Democratic primary is what furthers Trump to be a winner because of the fight in the Democratic primary. Michelle, you're a political consultant, uh, I think, as well as a consultant for other kinds of activities. Do you ever use polls? Yeah, but they're not the um, kind of end-all, be-all. You don't base everything on your polls. They serve as a guide. They help give you a sense of what's going on on the ground, but they can't be the end-all, be-all um, when you're just making strategic decisions about how a candidate should run their race, um, especially in the wake of how um, polls are conducted. Now some of the polling is done online. So when you look at, you know, between phone calls, you know, polling online and all of the different methods used to collect this data, along with the sample size and all these other factors, you can't possibly get a very accurate read on where people are. I mean, even when they were doing polling to see where Trump was, what they found was that a lot of people, when he was running for president, what they found was a lot of people weren't being honest about how they were going to vote. Why and would they, they do that? Well, <laughs> I could get some number of reasons why they wouldn't be totally honest about who they're going to vote for, but what you tell a pollster and what you do in the, in the ballot box can be totally different. At least I used to, when I was on radio and during elections, I'd get calls where people say these polls are rigged. Mm. But but really, pollsters don't want to rig polls, do they? They're in business to do polls and make money, and they're not going to make money and get clients if they're wrong all the time. For the most part, most reputable pollsters don't want to rig things, although it is interesting. I think sometimes pollsters should know that their sample was too far off to really report a poll as accurate, although the earlier on it is, the more willing they are to do that because as it gets closer to the election, they try to tighten up 
the samples and make sure they're more accurate. But earlier on, they're a little more liberal, a little more loose. And the tricky thing about presidential races is all these national polls don't give us the data we need because it's state-by-state state races for the Electoral College, and there's not as many quality polls in the state Well, that's going to be level. abolished anyway, the Electoral College. <laughs> well, not yet. Now it is time for Roast and Toast, where the Ruckheads have 30 seconds each to report, retort, <laughs> or distort. And we start with Lisa. My roast is for Democrats with a polling average of less than 3% who are remaining in the presidential race. If after three national televised debates you don't have momentum, it's time to face the fact that you're just not resonating with voters. These low pollers staying in the race leads to desperate attention-seeking stunts like we saw in the last debate. And every minute spent covering and every dollar donated to these languishing candidates is a waste of resources that could be devoted to someone who could actually have a chance to be the nominee. All right, uh, Michelle. I want to give a toast to uh, former representative and now councilman Brandon Ellington for bringing up the decriminalization of low-level possession of marijuana um, to the city council and to community members who came out to support that initiative. I think the ordinance is in line with what the people want at a state level, which is evidenced by the um, uh, ballot initiative for medical marijuana, the prosecutor's office not prosecuting these type of cases. Um, although it's on hold, I hope to see it move forward and I hope he continues the fight. Dave. A roast to Kansas Governor Laura Kelly. Her Council on Tax Reform is brazenly designed to raise taxes on Kansas families once again, even though they've suffered three consecutive years of state income tax hikes. Instead of taking money to grow government, she should reduce the tax burden on every Kansan. Annie. I would like to toast Troy Schulte. He has been an amazingly successful and humble city manager for the last 10 years, and I wish him well on his future endeavors. All right, and finally, the Campus Reform website reports a growing number of unusual courses at colleges and universities. They include belly dancing, the wizarding world of Harry Potter, and tailgating, a class I assume meets only on weekends. <laughs> My favorite is one titled Adulting, where students learn such things as how to pay bills. I propose a class titled Common Sensing, designed to teach students not to take the courses I just mentioned. Full disclosure, I have no beef with tailgating. <laughs> and that is Ruckus for this week. Back next Thursday at 7. Now for the Ruckus and crew, Mike Shannon saying thanks for watching and good night.